Hi. I'm Tara. <laughs> Julie, I'm introduced, but not this time. I'm Tara. Nice to meet you. I want to, um, before I jump in, I want to thank a, a couple people today in particular. I want to thank the greeters that were standing at the really cold doors. Okay? It's like I was running up and down and up and down and up and down a million times. And every time I walked by, they would be like, good morning. Thank you. And opening the door and closing the door. Opening the door and closing the door. And I was like, thank you for like standing there. It's cold. Yeah, it's really cold. Okay. So thank you, wherever you are out there. Utah is a unique state for lots of reasons. There are the obvious ones, of course. There is all the jello that we can eat. Yes. Duh. And there's the things we can't always drink. Utah is famous for its singular fluff, and someone somehow scientifically proved that it really is the perfect est combination of humidity, altitude, snow, and salt, so we really do have the best. But how about these lesser-known but commonly experienced unique tidbits about our state? Utahns, for example, don't really swear a lot. This is a good thing, but we have come up with some alternative light curse words. Gosh darn, oh my... Good thing. Also, in terms of how we talk, we don't do real well with the letter T. Oh, where's Benton playing basketball tonight? Oh, he's playing in Layton. What are you guys going to do this afternoon? Oh, we're going to go up to the mountains. When my son um, was born and we like finally made it to the point where we could go to Little Jim, like this like rite of passage, I guess. And you go to Little Jim and all the kids are in the little group and the teacher looks over and says to us, oh, I'm so glad you came, Ben. We're going to need to talk about that. It's not his name, honey. Uh, we, you know, have some simple things like, you know, we dip our fries into a mix of ketchup and mayonnaise. We have the only state capital with three words in its name. And then finally, this is a big one. Our kids still go to school when the best snow on earth falls. I could say a lot of other things too, but I don't want to go down certain roads. Regardless, we are kind of on our own little planet in some ways, and you can find some unique words and foods and experiences, but what you can't find here in our special state is a Powerball ticket. No Powerball, but the powder people. Utah is one of only six states without a state-run lottery. It catches me by surprise when I'm in other states and you're like checking out at 7-Eleven and it's going and you hear these like tickets and scraps of pieces of paper that are busting out of these machines that could be worth hundreds or thousands or millions or billions of dollars. In 2014, Americans spent $70 billion on lottery tickets. More than movie, music, video, books, and sports tickets combined. The biggest jackpot was in January 2016 for $1.5 billion. There was a 1 in 292 million chance that you would become a billionaire. The odds were not in your favor. But three lucky winners did split the pay dirt. They won a lot of money, but they lost life as they knew it. Part of the requirements of the state-run lottery is that we've seen uh, this process where it has to be transparent. So we've seen, you know, those weirdo pictures of winners holding the big big cardboard check. This kind of dates me, but when I think of that, I think back to Publishers Clearinghouse. And you know, Ed McMahon's always knocking on the same door, and there's woman answers, and like she's jumping up and down, and her clothes are coming off, and she's pulling curlers out of her hair, and cats are running out, and she knocks herself out, falls to the floor, and Ed's still standing there in his same blue blazer. 
But once these folks regain consciousness, they have a lot of decisions to make. They're waking up to a whole new world. They're rich. And their immediate new problem is, do they take the lump sum or go with the installments? What would you do? But their bigger problem, which happens pretty quickly, is that it seems in most cases, money makes people funny. We've heard all the stories, right? The gentleman with a terribly tragic life story that wins $16 million with $3 in his bank account. And you're thinking, why are you buying lottery tickets? But he blew through the money, you know? He invested in all these schemes that his relatives dreamed up and ended up being the victim of attempted murder by his own brother and ended up in debt and saying, what happened to me? Another one, the doctor and his wife went it big, and the doctor poisons the wife, who dies, sadly, and then he goes into the safe to find that the wife had illegally signed bank documents to get all the funds that, and disperse them all without him knowing. Sounds like things were probably not going super in that home before the lottery, but he's still standing there, and he's saying, what happened to me? Their story after story of not just the lottery winners themselves, but the people around them going a little extreme. The money goes to their heads, and goes to their hearts. And something happens to them. We know that money or the stuff money can buy can't buy happiness. But money can trick you. It can distort what you think and what you feel about yourself. Money makes you think things about yourself that aren't true. It can make you think you're superior. It can make you a jerk. It can make you think because you made all of it that somehow you know how to manage it. It can make you think you've got things under control. It can make you think you're safe and secure and you're powerful. It can make you think that your wealth has made you wise. Today, we continue our series called Stuff, where we are examining the power of money and possessions and how easy it becomes to replace our almighty God with the almighty dollar. When Troy introduced this series a few weeks ago, he gave us a preview of some of the topics we were going to hit, and we knocked off a lot of them, but there was yet another topic he said we would return to later in the series, and here we are today. How money makes us arrogant. Lucky me. <sighs> this message, I hope, I hope, I hope, has something in it for everyone, but today I speak to a group of people who enjoy prosperity and possessions who perhaps have a condition that I'm going to call stuffed, and how that condition can mess with our minds and delude us into thinking we are all that. So let's pray. Oh, Lord. Well, I've learned I have a lot to learn about this. I think so many of us do. And so I pray that you would prepare us to see ourselves when it comes to this in a way that's not justifying and excusing and defensive, God, but just in a way that welcomes whatever it is you want to show us. We are grateful for the resources you give us, and we, we want to figure out how to, how to do it well. So I pray for us each individually that we hear from you. We love you. Amen. Uh, if you want to follow along, we are going today to the book of Deuteronomy. 
my daughter, I say it that way because my daughter was um, jumped onto the Wednesday night kids ministry Bible study this past fall at the very end. And she found out that all the kids were learning all the books of the Bible, which is so cool. And so she jumped in there and, and she was like, but, 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 but I need to catch up. So Jackie, who, who was teaching them, uh, sent us the little song uh, and it goes, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy. So every time I say Deuteronomy, that's what I hear, the Deuteronomy. And it makes it sound kind of suspicious and kind of scary. But it's actually a lovely book that Moses wrote to remind the people of Israel what God has done for them and also what God expects of them. Deuteronomy was written at the end of 40 years of wandering that had been endured by the nation of Israel. The kids who had left Egypt were now adults. They're grown-ups who spent their entire lives journeying en route, seeing the miracles and provision of God, yes, but walking and camping in very harsh, difficult conditions, as we'll see. And they come to the east side of the Jordan River, and they can see their final steps, the territory, the home that had been originally promised centuries earlier by their forefathers, the promised land. But before they pack up one more time and figure out how to cross, figure out how to cross one more river, Moses has some important things to say to these people of God before everything changes. And our chapter is part of this warning, part of this, I know you think you've arrived and I know you think you've, you've, you've got this now, but beware. It's kind of a theme in our series, beware. So Moses offers them a prescription for the disease of prosperity that we're calling stuffed but he knows that they're likely to catch. He says in verse one, be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Moses says in the very beginning, pay attention, pay attention to me this whole thing. Don't read the email halfway through and then be like, oh my gosh, it's so many words. Stay with me, listen. And then he says at the end, do it. For the people that aren't standing here with you, but believed God would make good on his word. He says ancestors. America, they say, is obsessed, apparently, with ancestry. Genealogy is the second most popular hobby in America after gardening. I know, number one surprised me as much as number two. Genealogy is the second most visited category of websites. And I'm not going to tell you what the first one is, and I'm going to ask you to not look it up. But there is fascination with this search for identity, this search for personal meaning in our ancestry, where we come from. My grandparents came from Italy and Germany and Ireland. I say I come from Massachusetts, but there's another side to my ancestral identity. My spiritual ancestors are also the people of Israel who are waiting to get to the promised land, and they did. And the people that waited for the Messiah to come, and he did. And now we wait, still trying to follow those same commandments until he comes again. Moses is saying to the people, this isn't just about you. It's about them. And I'm saying this story isn't just about them. It's about us. So Moses says, listen up. Think about who you are from where you came. God promised them. He promised you this land was a promise, and God doesn't break his promises. But most importantly, Moses says that you need to do the stuff I'm telling you today so that when you get there, you can live and increase in the land. The Lord held up his end of the bargain. Here's how you held up your end, too. So he says in verse 2, remember the long way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. He says, Remember, 
Remember the long way. Remember the 40 years. Remember the wilderness. A word on wilderness. A wilderness is defined as a place that is uninhabitable. A place in which without some kind of miraculous help, you will die. Kind of like earth. Where we will most certainly die, but miraculously live again. The wilderness is a place where throughout the Bible, God meets his people. Yes, but it is a terrible, dreadful place full of danger and drought. This is what the people of Israel have gone through. And you think they'd be looking at him like, remember? I'm not going to forget this. Thank you very much. I, I personally enjoy camping, right? But after a few days, like, mm, you know, it's a lot of work. A lot, lot, of, lot, of, lot of food preparation. A lot of bugs, a lot of setting up, a lot of tearing down, a lot of work to feast on nature's bounty. And I'm near a lake. I don't need God to squeeze water out of a rock. Now, they were certainly not feasting, but it does seem that their experience out there would leave a lasting impression. But God knew that once their circumstances improved, how quickly they'd forget. So he says, remember. He says, don't forget. Remember to thank God when he produces the prosperity he promised. Memory is fascinating. It's unpredictable how often we say of an emotional or of a painful experience, I will never forget that. You want to you honor the, the going throughness of whatever it was. But our brains are funny. Sometimes even the most poignant things, they slip away. This, this forgetting can be a good thing. Women forget sometimes the challenges of pregnancy and giving birth, which is certainly a gift to some and a wonderful experience for all, but traumatic in some cases, and then we forget long enough to go through it all again. This is why we have siblings. Forgetfulness is a common phenomenon. One of my theories about our, our forgetfulness issues is why we have so many weird holidays. We're worried we'll forget if we didn't have Squirrel Appreciation Day, which comes up January 1st, that we'd forget our sweet little friend, the squirrel. The point is that sometimes we have to do things to make ourselves remember. And that's what the author's saying. The Hebrew word for remember is zachar. And it's different than how we would normally define remember. It's a special verb in the vocabulary of Israel. It can be translated as mindful, not an accidental remembering. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. I remember it's your birthday. Facebook didn't remind me soon enough today. No, it's a, it's a deliberate holding in my mind or applying of the mind, which creates some kind of action. Ignore, on the other hand, is the word. This is a really good one. Shachach. I didn't want to say that at all. Let's say it. Let's spit on each other. Shachach. This is apparently a very forceful, uh, deliberate, putting something out of your mind. So it's the opposite of mind, full. Remembering is recalling moments and memories, but it's purposeful. It's purposeful what he's talking about, making connections and making meaning from those connections. In this case, remembering is about remaining faithful. It's about deliberately remembering your commitment. Ignoring where we came from, who we were, where we've been, and what that means about who we are can become forgetting what God did and what he's doing. 
in this case, back to our verse, Moses is concerned about God's people remembering that the Lord, as the verse says, uh, verse two, remember the long way that the Lord, your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. He's worried that they're forgetting. He led his people through the wilderness to this place. They didn't know where they were going. They didn't know how to get there. There weren't any directions. The Lord led them. Remember the Lord led you into the prosperity. He promised you were utterly dependent. Verses two through five, they say, remember the long way that the Lord, your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness in order to humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that a man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. The clothes on your back did not wear out, and your feet did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a parent disciplines a child, so the Lord, your God, disciplines you. The meaning he wants them to remember is that he did this to humble them, to test them, to discipline them, and to teach them. That was the point of the wilderness training. It's humbling to be lost and to be hungry and weak and say, I can't do this, that you need him to lead you, that you need him to feed you, to be wholly dependent on his mercy and his grace. I was in um, Swaziland, Africa twice this year. I've been there in years past, but this year um, was a particularly humbling experience because the people have been so deeply affected by the worst drought in a century. Folks are hungry the kind of hunger you can hear. But both times we had teams there, some of you are here, that were there. It rained. And I remember looking up at the sky with my Swazi buddies and thanking God for making it rain. When there's no food in my house, I go to the grocery store. When there's no, uh, or when I'm thirsty, um, I turn on the faucet. But when there's no food or water in a Swazi's homestead or in their creek beds or in their streams, they need God to make it rain. And I stood there in that rain when I think I would have normally uh, back home, you know, I would have run inside and I would have been like, oh, the dog is going to track mud all over the house. It so annoys me. And I thanked God for the rain. I thanked him for feeding them. Humility is one of those slippery characteristics that's hard to define. But what it is, is it's an acknowledgement of weakness. It's not responding in some weird way to a compliment. No, I really don't look great in those jeans. It's not, it's not just being sorry all the time for everything. Humility is a state of mind that you cannot succeed on your own strength, that it says in verse 4, you couldn't have kept your clothes from wearing out. You couldn't have prevented your feet from swelling after walking for 40 years straight. You can't make it rain. And what better way to experience that, to learn it, than by experiencing it firsthand? So he humbles them and he tests them. How would they act when they were hungry? How do you act when you're hungry? How would they behave in desolation and desperation with no resources? And he wants them to pass this test. The wilderness can be this like make or break situation, but he wants to make them into people that are ready for their next chapter, people that are ready for their freedom. 
And God disciplines his people in love. These were teenagers on the spiritual growth chart, needing to be shaped, to grow into maturity, to become faithful despite circumstance, shaped in how they handle a little before they are entrusted with much. And the lesson he tells us in verse four, verse three, excuse me, is that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. God gave them what they needed to survive, but only keeping the word of God would keep them alive. Remember what he said in verse one. So you can live. This is how you live By doing what he said in awe of who he is. He says in verse 6, Observe the commands of the Lord your God, walking in obedience to him and revering him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land with brooks, streams, and deep springs, gushing out into the valleys and hills. A land with wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates and olive oil and honey. A land where bread will not be scarce. And you will lack nothing. A land where the rocks are iron and you can dig copper out of the hills when you've eaten and are satisfied. Praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. This is a very vivid description. You could imagine them sitting there like, oh, let's go. Is there food there? There might already be food there. But if there's not, it's going to be great because it's going to rain and then we can grow food and we'll be there long enough that, you know, the, the animals can eat and we'll have herds and we'll have flocks and there'll be water, water bursting, flowing everywhere. And there'll be enough to eat and there will be lack, and there'll be minerals to dig out of the mine, and, and, and we'll have copper, we'll have things that we can sell, business, economy, profit. This sounds like the promised land. This was worth the walk and the wait. And it says, and you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you because you know in your heart, it says in verse 5, it was from him. But before they can spin out of control and start creating their meal plans, he says again, be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God failing to observe those commands, his laws, and his decrees that I'm giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build the fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large, and your silver and gold increase, and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He led you through the vast and dreadful wilderness, the thirsty and waterless land, with its venomous snakes and scorpions. He brought you water out of hard rock. He gave you manna to eat in the wilderness, something your ancestors had never known to humble and test you, so that in the end, it might go well with you. Again, don't forget to remember, don't ignore Do remember, the one who brought you out of, insert whatever that is, for them it was slavery. For you it might be depression, it might be debt, it might be divorce, some kind of devastation, some kind of drama. But the one who brought you out of something, or to something, or is getting you through something, is your gracious God. You're not as self-made as you think you are. Money makes you think things about yourself that just aren't true. And when you have a roof over your head, and the immediate pressures of surviving life lift, and there's enough money to pay the bills, and there's an actual job, and then all that gets multiplied, and you have even more, 
then your heart might become proud and you will forget the Lord your God, that he led you, that he fed you, that you went from thirsty ground to fountains and springs, that everything you went through to be humbled and tested and ready might fade away in the comforts and the conveniences of your new surroundings. That a full fridge and GPS will mess with your mind. Essayist Thomas Carlyle said, Adversity is sometimes hard upon a man, but for one man who can stand prosperity, there are a hundred that will stand adversity. It's not a natural, easy task to deliberately remember to depend on God as much in prosperity as it is in adversity. Prosperity can screw up your perspective. Some things can happen. You, you, you might become accustomed, almost expectant of convenience. You might now be able to get the better of a thing, and then like even the best of a thing, and then somehow it's like still doesn't feel like quite enough of the thing. You might act like an arrogant jerk that's entirely entitled and easily offended. You might become convinced you've got things under control. You might think money's going to fix you. You thought it was going to fix you, and then you're kind of mad that it didn't. When we were going to pay our bills, I was going to be a different person. When we got out of debt, we were going to have a way better marriage. When we finally got a bigger house or a bigger apartment and we weren't all on top of each other, we were going to like each other more. When God finally did in our finances what I've been asking him to do, it was going to be all about him. We were going to get like super close, me and God. When I finally landed that customer and I didn't feel the pressure of the, the, the providing, you know, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't feel that anymore. I wouldn't feel like this. When I could finally buy the clothes that look really good on me, I'm going to feel so much better about myself. When I'm rolling in the dough, I'm going to give so much of it away. When we're financially comfortable, I'm going to make a budget and I'm going to save, and we're going to never go back there again. Prosperity has its problems. It make us, makes us think things about ourselves that aren't true. Why is it that financially successful people sometimes think because they're rich that they're an expert or right about kind of everything? It's a weird thing, right? Why? Because you know what stocks to buy are, are, are you suddenly an expert on? Landscaping. Why? Because you secured a lucrative patent that made it big on Shark Tank. Do you know everything now about marriage? This one bugs me because it's so true. Why do celebrities who you know have personal chefs, you know that they do, why do they all write cookbooks? <laughs> so many. Always at Christmas. I'm like, you don't really know. But that's not very nice of me. Very judgmental. Why? Because you have a bunch of money and you made it to retirement, you, in general, feel like, I just kind of made it. Money makes you think things about yourself that aren't true. People often compliment me on my house. And it is a lovely, wonderful house. But my husband is a builder, and my sister-in-law is an interior designer. In the end, I didn't have terribly much to do with the outside or the inside of my house. When we had to furnish it, she said, let's go to Pier 1, and I had a panic attack in the store. There's so many things in there. But when people compliment me on my house, I'm like, oh, 
Thank you. <laughs> That's kind of the point. Moses is concerned that this thinking is causing one major problem. In verse 14, he says, Then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God. Moses warns us about pride. Our money, the stuff we can do with our money, has power. And when it goes to our head, and pride plants itself there, plants itself there, that's what makes us think things about ourselves that aren't true. Like, I did this. I earned this. I made this. I'm a self-made, self-starter, self-sufficient person who takes a lot of selfies, and I'm not arrogant. I'm just good at what I do. I mean, can't we just, like, celebrate our human achievement? Maybe you didn't sleep for a decade trying to get through med school and residency and fellowship. And your family sacrificed for that success. Maybe you literally invented some kind of weird kitchen gadget. Maybe you worked since you were 10, and you got yourself all the way up the ladder to a healthy bank account, to a good retirement, and you put your kids through school. You scratched and you scraped and pulled yourself out of debt. You worked your butt off to get that degree. You practiced your fingers off to learn that music. You made a million right choices every day to get out of rehab, to get a job, get on your own. But yet, it's God who opened the doors. It's God who gave you the opportunities and the experiences to become what you've become. A lot more of what we have done is in, part, is in partnership with God than we think it is. And that is true. Verse 17 says, You may say to yourself, My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But you remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. Moses doesn't just say it's God who gave you wealth. He says it's God who gives you the ability to produce wealth. Alex Haley, the author of Roots, he made an interesting observation. He said, if you're walking along a fence and you spot a turtle sitting atop a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself. So... Brilliant, right? I've never seen this, but apparently he did. And it's on the internet. So let me ask you, is your prosperity producing pride or praise? Pride is a slippery, slippery-ish kind of word too. It's hard to define. But Moses says it, that your heart will be lifted up. There's like this upness to pride, kind of a jockeying on the food chain where your fortune makes you forget where you fit in. There's an upness to entitlement or your significance or superiority, but God thunders out of heaven. And he says to all those who are prideful in Isaiah 2:11, the eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Our jealous for us, God knows that pride will crowd him right out of our minds and right out of our lives. Psalm 10.4 says, In his pride the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there's no room for God. And he makes us think things about ourselves that aren't true. Ironically, prosperity just puts more pressure on you. You know what I mean? 
prosperity? You think it wouldn't? But it, it brings this pressure to provide, the pressure to create prosperity, and then to keep creating the prosperity or keep the prosperity that you have. And it's like this heavy, crushing feeling. And that is not the so you may live. We worry about creating prosperity and forget about the creator who didn't create us for the stress that pride causes us to bear. In money's presence and in money's absence, pride and pressure suffocate us, right? Not, not having money, not having stuff, makes you think things about yourself that aren't true, too. That you're not smart enough, successful enough. What you're worth or what you're not worth becomes your worth, your value. But you're not the sum of that one thing. You're not the sum of your bank account. What you do for a living doesn't matter as much as who you do it for. The chapter ends with Deuteronomy 19. If you ever forget the Lord your God, if you do it, and you follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. Pride and arrogance, whether it comes from the prosperity of money and possessions or not, wherever it comes from, leads to destruction. We go through the wilderness to learn to be taught that what is true is that man does not live on bread alone, but on everything that comes from the mouth of the Lord, from the word of God. And the only way we live alive, the only way we solve the problem of prosperity is to eat the word of God. So what the, oh my heck, does that mean? It means we purposefully, deliberately Remember, and we attack pride with the weapon of humility. A heart of humility doesn't come from what you think about yourself. It comes from what you think about God and what that makes you think about you. And the greatest example of humility is God, the Father, who sent his son to be born in a manger, in a stable, outside, with no place to go, with no comforts or conveniences, in the most humble of circumstances. And yet this child was born the Son of God, the Word of God who became flesh, who grew and who knew no sin, who was baptized, and then right after that was led into the wilderness too for 40 days and 40 nights and leapt to hunger and who responded to temptation in that moment just like Moses suggested to our ancestors. Jesus says in Matthew 4, 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Jesus surrendered. Jesus remembered. Jesus, who could have turned a stone into bread, trusted in God's provision instead. Today, uh, especially it being a week before Christmas, I thought we could uh, participate, excuse me, in an act of deliberate remembrance by receiving communion together. Communion makes us remember. Communion reminds us that Jesus gave up his life on the cross, dying as a sacrifice for our sins, that we might know what it means to live unafraid, even of death. When followers of Jesus receive the bread and the cup, we remember that sacrifice. 
I'd like to invite our hosts to come forward. Let's join together. Let's reflect on the generosity of God revealed in that cross. And let's reflect on the hope of God that is revealed in this video, that no matter where we've been, where we are, that he's got us, that he's with us, that he's for us. And as we celebrate communion today, let's also remember he's leading us. He's feeding us that he loves us. If you're new to our community, you're welcome to participate with us. If you'd prefer simply to observe, you can just pass the trays along to the person sitting next to you. Thanks, you guys. You can roll the video. As I stand here, this communion, knowing in my heart that I have so many symptoms of being stuffed, that I've had to reflect on in my own behavior this week. I can talk about what it feels like to have this disease because I have it. A few weeks ago in November, my husband told me that we had a water heater and we could give away. And he asked me to try to find somebody who might need it. I didn't, it's like, okay. So I called Utah Foster Care and they, or I emailed them, and they emailed me right back, right away, to say how odd it was because someone had just called and said that they needed a water heater. Theirs had just broken. They have eight children in the house. And so soon after, this mom called me, and she left me this message. And she was crying, and I, I couldn't understand everything. And anyway, by the time I called her back, it was really late at night, and um, I thought it was too late, but I called her anyway. And we just kind of, you know, when you get somebody on the phone and you can't see them, but you're like, you just kind of connect. We just kind of connected right away. And I said, what's going on? And then she told me her story. She and her husband had married very young. They'd had three children. Very quickly, they'd been together since they were 15. And after their three kids were born, they had to take in uh, one of their nieces. And so they became licensed through the Utah foster care system. And since then, over the past 15 years, they've had 150 children come through their home. They've adopted five of them. So her husband put them to bed every night, reads, read to them, held them, held everything together, really, her husband. I'm having this conversation with her in the middle of November. And then she says to me, on October 20th, he was killed in a terrible car accident. He got up and he walked around, but he had so many internal injuries, and she got a call and he had died. And I'm standing there in my bathroom, and I'm like, okay, okay. I, I, okay, I just want to fix this, right? I said, no problem, we're going to get you the water heater and then that's going to make everything better and what's your plan for Thanksgiving? I can go and I can buy you the food and you know you can have the food for Thanksgiving and then just text me everything that you need for your kids for Christmas and we'll do that and we'll, we'll get everything and we'll talk about the list and we'll get it all taken care of and, and everything's going to be good. And I wanted my money to fix it. And I fell into this weird pride about myself and about the discretionary income that God has graced me with. And it gave me and the power and my money power that it didn't have to fix something I never could. I remember looking at the rug and thinking to myself, Tara, shut up. Just shut up. 
And so I let go. And I just, I felt like, just go low. And I did. And I sat down on my bathroom floor. It was kind of like my way in my head. I think of like going low. And I remembered who I am, who I'm not, and who he is. She had one of her, her kids, I remember the, one of her nine-year-olds, I think she had two nine-year-olds, sleep on her, because that's the only way that that child can sleep now, and I could hear them breathe. And I just said, I'm sorry. I, I know this is like personal. I don't know if I'm supposed to ask this, but do you have any, do you have, have, a, have a faith? And I don't know why I was even surprised, but she said yes. She said she and her husband have been Christ followers, are Christ followers, that they actually have volunteered for years as at, at youth pastors at a little church in West Jordan. And then she started talking about God, and then we were bound. We were bound in adversity. We were bound in prosperity by Jesus. And we prayed. And we thanked God for her husband's life on earth. And we thanked God for her husband's life in heaven. And we cried, and we prayed, and we praised. And that was what she needed. That is what we all need, knowing in our hearts that we have been graced by God. And that humility, the going low, lifts that heaviness. And it's, it's a relief. In our weakness and in his grace, we have hope. Hope for a brighter day, like it said. Hope for a better world. As we've gone through this week and seen all those images in Aleppo, hope for this world. We need that. He left heaven and he came to earth to love and to redeem. And so we say thank you to Jesus, our living hope, who delivers on everything he promises and more. First Corinthians says, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Please take the bread. In the same way, sorry, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Please take the cup. Let's pray. We thank you, God, for delivering on your promises, your promise to prosper us, to give us hope and a future. Jesus, we, we know that you are our hope in want and in plenty. We remember that. We thank you for that. We are not slaves, for you have saved us. It is in your grace that we find the truth. And I pray we remember what this world and all the things in it try to convince us is true about ourselves but isn't, and that we can instead remember what's true about you, that you are a prince of peace for the world. And we cannot live in this adversity or in this prosperity without your sacrifice. So we pray that you would help us remember we cannot rely 
on our wits, on our wealth. Help us to put money in its proper place where it belongs, to not lose ourselves in it. Let that happen to us or become something that's not pleasing to you because of it. Humble us, test us, discipline us, teach us to think about ourselves what is true, that it is only in your love that we live. Amen. Uh, We usually have homework here at Capitol, but I just was inspired by my children's teachers who um, told my kids that they don't have any homework over Christmas break, and that made me cry because that's really what I want for Christmas, or like a bunch of no homework passes for my children, um, so we don't have to fight so much. Um, So homework pass, um, but I would, you know, I, I don't have the perfect way to say this. I just, I would just encourage you to, when you pray and think about the Lord over the next week, especially, um, what does going low look like for you? And, and I, I, I don't know what I mean exactly even by that. I just pray, um, I would just encourage you to, to think about what, what does that look like, going low and lifting him up. Um, we'll have, of course, the verse, uh, Deuteronomy eight seventeen. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, I don't know why I'm rushing through that. It's the word of God. My power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And then um, we'll also have the graphic. Money makes you think things about yourself that aren't true. Sounds harsh, but it's true. Uh, We'll also be available online, so um, thank you. Please stand. I guess this is the first time you're hearing from me today, but it seems terribly inappropriate to say hi, friends, when I'm getting ready to say bye, friends. So I won't say hi, friends, but I do want to tell you a couple things. Uh, I'm so thankful to Tara for sharing from the scriptures today, a very important message that a lot of us need to hear. And I had a feeling she'd be the right person to conclude our study of money and possessions, and I'm thankful she did. I know uh, some of you came in today bearing a, a heavy burden, whatever it might be. Something snapped loose in your life recently. If you would like to receive prayer from, from one of our family members, we'd love for you to stick around. Join us right here at the front. We'll have some people waiting here at the front of the stage ready to pray for you. Before you leave, come forward and ask one of them to pray for you. I want to reiterate something that Kelly shared earlier about our Christmas Eve services. Now, uh, as she said, 3 o'clock, 4.30, 6 o'clock right here in this building, 8 p.m. at our Park City location. And we'd love for you to, uh, if you don't mind a later service, we'd love for you to drive up to Park City. If you'd like an evening in Park City, it looks like the weather's going to be gorgeous. So so join us at, at one of these four, four services, but particularly... What I'd love for you to do is prayerfully consider whom you might bring with you. Do you have a friend, a family member, a a colleague who might respond to a gentle, no-pressure invitation? What are you doing on Christmas Eve? 
invite them to join us. Most of you know what our Christmas Eve services are like. They're a little different than our weekend services. We weave music and message together to tell the story of the birth of King Jesus. We'd love for them to, to hear his story, and we'd love for them to have an experience within our church community. Will you let God guide you this week? Who might you bring with you on Christmas Eve? Don't forget about our Grace and Peace photo books at the back. We'd love to put those in your hands uh, before the holiday as well. My prayer for all of you is this. May God help you to keep money from going to your head. May you think of yourselves as turtles on fence posts. Remembering that God is the giver of affluence, the giver of influence, and the giver of every opportunity and experience that's made us who we are today. Thanks for being here today. Grace and peace.